Have you ever had something bad happen in your life that God used to bring about something really great? Or even better than that, have you ever planned out your life perfectly and decided just how everything was going to work out just to have God come in and shred your plans up right in your face? I definitely have experienced this in my life. I've completely given up on trying to plan out my life because every time I do, God says, nope, and sends me off in a completely different direction. When I moved to PEI about 10 years ago, I intended to go to Maritime Christian College for one year, get my biblical studies certificate, and then go on to Holland College, uh, and I wanted to eventually work in IT as a network administrator. But by the end of my first year, God said, nope, you're not going to do that. You're going to stay at MCC for four years and get a degree and go into ministry. And I struggled to get on board with that for a little while. Um, my dad was a preacher, so, you know, when you're a preacher's kid, for a while you kind of like, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not going <laughs> to do what my dad did. Um, but eventually I said, okay, okay, God, sure. And then a few years ago, um, a few years after that, I had a, a bad experience working in youth ministry. And, and I had a hard time coming out of that, and I said, okay, well, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Maybe this isn't what God's calling me to do. And, and so I said, you know, maybe he's calling me to do something else. Uh, so eventually I decided to go work at a software company after a series of other kind of random jobs. Um, and then I thought, well, this is great. This is working out. Uh, and I had these big plans to work up in this company into a management position. Uh, but then God said, no. You're not doing that either. And so I left there. I was like, okay, well now what am I supposed to do? And then I ended up in the electrical program at Holland College. I'm not even sure how that happened. I'm still not sure how that ended up being a thing. Uh, which, you know, that's fine. <laughs> and I said, okay, God, well, if that's where you want me, that's fine. I can use my, my spiritual gifts in a church as a member. That's, that's fine. But he said, no, 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 you're still going to be a pastor. I was like, okay. <laughs> Sure. So I started out planning to be in IT as a network administrator. And now through a series of unfortunate and fortunate events, I am now somewhere around a building supervising electrician preacher. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, at this point, I'm just kind of along for the ride. <laughs> I'm sure everyone can kind of relate to that feeling about life sometimes, though, about how... You know, sometimes things just happen the way they're going to happen. God has a plan. You just kind of have to accept that his plan is going to be the one that succeeds. It probably isn't the same as your plan, and you're just along for the ride. You just have to accept that. But my point is that God can use anything to achieve his goals and his plans. But it doesn't always make sense to us along the way. He makes all things work together for our good. He works through blessing. But he also works through the pain and the suffering, the, the challenges and the trials that we face. And through the death of Jesus, out of man's greatest evil, he worked the greatest good of all time. He redeemed humanity through the greatest sin, the most atrocious act we could come up with in the history of the world. The unjust torture and murder of a completely innocent man. And not just a man, but God in the flesh, the Son of God. We were studying these prophecies about the Messiah for a number of weeks, and this week we've come to a prophecy that's very unique. First of all, it's not an Old Testament prophecy. 
It's actually a prophecy from just a week or two before Jesus died. But second, and more importantly, this is a prophecy that was completely unwittingly spoken. The man who spoke it did not realize he did it. And it was the man, the one man who wanted Jesus dead more than anybody else at the time, the high priest Caiaphas. And it's the perfect example of God taking our evil and using it for his good. You see, Caiaphas was a scared man. Most of the Jews of the day saw him as illegitimate, put into power by the Romans as an usurper of the high priesthood because they believed that a high priest was for life. And so the Romans, they replaced the old high priest, who awkwardly enough was his father-in-law, with him. So he knew that his position as high priest was only secure if he kept the Romans happy. And he also knew it was only secure if there was a temple to be high priest of. And so he also knew that the Romans didn't like Messiah types in their conquered provinces because they were usually the instigators of revolts against Rome. So to him, Jesus was a personal threat to his position and his power. So he made a plan to remove that threat from the equation. But God then uses that plan for his own purposes. He caused Caiaphas to unintentionally prophesy as he spoke his plan against Jesus out loud. And the kicker is that he didn't even know that he did it. So let's read this story. This is from John 11, verses 47 through 53. And this is right before, or right after uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So a ton of people are beginning to believe in Jesus and follow him. And then it says here, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not just for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. All right, so there's a few things you kind of need to know about in order to get a full understanding of what's going on here, because at that time, in that culture, the province of Judea was a political powder keg that was ready to explode at a moment's notice. Uh, first of all, the entire Palestine region was occupied by the Romans. And before the Romans, they'd been occupied by one group after another ever since they came back from exile. And so the local population, they were subject to the Romans, but they really wanted their independence, and they were willing to do just about anything to get it. Second, messiahs were not a unique concept in first century Judaism in any way, shape, or form. There was this promised messiah from the Old Testament, and they all knew about it, and so they were looking for this messiah. Um, in fact, Judea was known to be a hotbed of rebel activity against Rome, and most of those groups were led by people who either self-identified as the messiah who was promised, or people who said, this is the messiah, who were part of their rebel group. And so these groups would... Uh, they conduct like terrorist-type attacks on the Roman authorities. 
uh, and on collaborators with the Romans. Now, I love history, and this isn't a perfect example, but I think a good comparison to what's going on here would be the situation in France during the Second World War. So France was occupied by Nazi Germany, and for the duration of the war, uh, there were multiple resistance groups through the country who would operate against the Nazis with the hope and the goal of eventually driving them out. Now, of course, the Nazis did not appreciate these groups very much, and they would seek retribution against them for attacks with the goal of destroying any resistance and demoralizing them. And this kind of culminated on June 10, 1944, uh, when the Nazis, uh, in retribution for an alleged attack on an SS soldier, they massacred an entire village and destroyed it. Now, that village actually stands to this day, you can go to it, it's a, it's a national historic site in France. But that is exactly the type of situation that Caiaphas was terrified of as high priest. He was essentially a first century collaborator with the Romans, but his position was completely dependent on the happiness of the Romans and the existence of a temple and a capital for him to be high priest of. And if the Romans had to come and quash a rebellion, they might also destroy Jerusalem and the temple as well in retribution. So the traditional understanding that the Jews had of the Messiah in that, uh, that day was that he would be a warrior who would unite Israel as the king of the Jews and drive out the oppressing nation. So when all these people start flocking to Jesus uh, as the Messiah, and as Jesus is healing people and raising people from the dead, Caiaphas got scared. He knew something had to be done before the Romans got wind of it, because the Romans, if they heard about it, they would probably assume it was the beginning of another anti-Roman rebellion. And the Romans did not take kindly to rebellions. There had been many other attempted rebellions by these other messianic sects that I talked about, and this could be the final straw with the Romans. So the real truth was that the high priest and the Pharisees, they didn't fear Jesus himself as much as they feared the response that he was going to bring from the Romans. It was more like, if we don't deal with this Jesus problem right now, then Jesus doing miracles is going to be the least of our problems. So what do we do? And that's what's going on in this meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and all these people are flocking to him. So I'll read verse 47 again. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him keep going on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then Caiaphas said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He's saying it's better for this one guy to die than for all of us to lose our positions and have our capital raised to the ground. But I want you to notice what's never actually discussed here. They know Jesus is performing miracles. They know he raised someone from the dead. It's not like these are rumors. They know. That's why they're meeting. There's Pharisees who have been following Jesus around throughout his ministry. People are coming and reporting to the Pharisees to tell them what he's doing. They know this is actually happening. But they never discuss whether or not he's actually innocent or guilty of inciting insurrection. They never actually discuss whether or not he might be the Messiah. 
The Sanhedrin was the highest court of the land in the first century. It was a group of 70 of the highest Jewish scholars, led by the high priest himself. It functioned as the supreme religious, legislative, and educational body of Palestinian Jews. If anyone should have been on the lookout for the Messiah, it should have been them. But they didn't even discuss it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that the spiritual leadership of the Jewish people would not want to know whether Jesus was truly the Messiah or not? And we usually assume that this is because they didn't believe he was the Messiah, so it was already an assumed thing. And in some cases that was true. Many of them didn't believe he was the Messiah. But the real truth is actually sadder and even scarier than that. The truth is that they didn't care. We know that some of the Jewish leaders did, in fact, believe that he was who he said he was, including some of the Pharisees themselves, like Nicodemus. But check this out. John 12, verse 42 to 43 says, Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Wow. Just wow. Imagine being so hard of heart that you can't even be bothered to care whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. It's one thing to consider people crucifying Jesus because they believed that he was a false prophet or a blasphemer. And in cases that was true. But this is a whole other thing. These leaders, some of them knew who Jesus was, who he said he was. They knew he was the Messiah. They just didn't care. Or at least not enough to do anything about it. And then you have the Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, and they don't even care enough to consider or discuss whether he might actually be sent to them by God himself. For Caiaphas, it didn't matter whether Jesus was guilty or not. It didn't matter whether he was sent by God or some crazy guy. In his mind as the high priest, it was more important that it was better for him as one person to die for the sake of the viability of the Jewish nation under Roman rule. Do you hear how that sounds? Like, it's just crazy. The plot to kill Jesus was not just as simple as jealousy or competition or righteous anger. Those were factors, but the truth is that it was more about apathy and self-preservation. Again, it's one thing to kill Jesus, the promised Messiah, because you think he's a liar and a blasphemer. It's a whole other thing to kill him to save your own skin and your own position of power without even a second thought as to whether he might actually be the Messiah. Make no mistake, in my opinion, that is the greatest sin of all time. Better for one man to die than for the entire nation to perish. Better to kill Jesus, whoever he is, than to watch Jerusalem and the temple fall to the ground. Crazy. And yet, in, in this moment, at this pinnacle of sin in human history, that God's will and God's plan prevails. This statement by Caiaphas is not just a statement. It is a prophecy. It was well known that the uh, high priests would prophesy from time to time. But the best part of this story is that at no point did Caiaphas himself know that he had done so. 
John says that he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not just for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life, and that statement shows he had no clue what he had said. This statement, this prophecy by Caiaphas, was truer than he ever could have imagined. He suggested sacrificing Jesus in order to alleviate political tension, without realizing that he had just prophesied that Jesus' death would be the spiritual salvation of the world. The ultimate substitution, the ultimate sacrifice. They plotted and planned against Jesus to preserve their own position, but God used Caiaphas' own words, his own plotting, to prophesy his own victory. God took the greatest evil humanity had ever committed, and through it he worked the greatest good of all time. Okay, so now that we've heard this prophecy, here are three reasons why God's plan is better than your plan. This is what I want you to take away from all of this. So first of all, God's plan is better than your plan because he sees the future. We work so hard to plan out our lives and to make decisions based on what we know. Uh, we know where we would like to be in five years, but that's not always the way things turn out, is it? Because the truth is, we don't even know what's going to happen in five minutes. I'd like to think that when I finish this program at Holland College, I'll land the best apprenticeship ever, I'll fly through my blocks, and I'll have this awesome job experience, but for all I know, I'll be dead tomorrow. <laughs> we don't know. And my point is that it's kind of hard to plan the future when we don't know what the future holds. But God knows what the future holds. We can only take an educated guess based on the facts, but God knows for certain what will happen tomorrow, next week, next year, forever. Isaiah 46, 9-10 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times declaring things not yet done. See, Caiaphas' plan was to save his temple and his capital out of self-preservation, and I will give him a little credit, just a tiny little bit, because he did believe it was the center of Judaism and therefore God's presence on earth. But God's plan was to render the temple unnecessary by purchasing freedom for all of humanity from the grip of sin. Caiaphas wanted to save the temple, but through God's plan, we are the temple. God doesn't live in a temple anymore. God lives in us. He has the full picture, and Caiaphas did not. So wouldn't you want to trust God's plan for your life over your own plan? The second reason that God's plan is better than your plan is because his ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. Not only does God have the whole picture of history, he also knows what is best for us much better than we do for ourselves. We think we know what's best for us. We'd like to believe that we know what we need, but in reality, we're like immature children. A child thinks they know what is best for them, but their parents understand their needs much better than they do. Now, do children appreciate correction and direction at the time? No. But as time goes on, and they become older and mature, and maybe have kids of their own, not that I know, um, 
they, they begin to understand. They start to see wisdom through their parents' direction and actions. And the same applies for us with our relationship with God. You know, as a child, it's hard to accept that I should eat these vegetables on my plate when I can see the cake in the kitchen on the counter right there. I know the cake tastes good and the vegetables taste bad. Why would I want to eat the vegetables? And her parents, they say, no, you have to eat your vegetables before you can have the cake. We didn't understand why. Our parents told us they were good for us, but vegetables taste bad. How could they be good for us? But, but now as adults, we understand. Without the vegetables, we wouldn't have gotten the vitamins and nutrients we needed to grow up and mature into healthy adults. And when it comes to God's plan for us, it's the exact same thing. His plan might not always taste good. Sometimes he works through pain and suffering. How can bad things bring about good things? But we have to remember that God's ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. He knows what we need to learn and to grow. And his plan is good, so don't settle for cake, or you'll feel terrible all the time. Trust God's plan, eat the vegetables, because he knows ultimately what is best for you and I. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The, the Jews in the lead-up to Jesus couldn't have possibly conceived God's plan for the world, because it was completely counter to their entire way of thinking and their entire idea of who the Messiah would be. But I think, looking back at the full context, we can all agree that God's plan for humanity was much better than their picture of the Messiah, their desire to overthrow the Romans by force, or better than Caiaphas' plan to do whatever had to be done to make sure the temple stayed upright. God's ways are so much higher than our ways, and we need to trust that he knows what is best for us. And the third reason that God's plan is better than your plan is that we plan, but God directs. And you may be wondering what I mean by that. When we make plans, we create these big schemes trying to control the circumstances around us. And what I mean by that is that we make the assumption that we are in control to begin with or that we can control anything. When in reality, God directs our path. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And then finally, Jeremiah 10, verse 23, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. You can't plan against God. And if your plan isn't to follow God's plan for your life, it will ultimately fail. Look at Caiaphas. This is actually a cool situation because God didn't cause his plan to fail. He caused his plan to succeed. Why? Because it was God's plan all along. <laughs> Talk about a plot twist. They thought they were so smart. Just kill Jesus and the problem goes away and peace is restored. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus had to die in order to achieve God's plan. Their success was ultimately their failure. And when you compare our plans with God, with all we know about God, it's like we're all playing checkers while he's playing chess. We can't compete. We will lose. We'll always lose. 
if we try and make our plans apart from God. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but eventually it will happen. And the irony is that even though they succeeded in killing Jesus, the Romans still came in 70 AD, they still tore down the temple, and they still destroyed Jerusalem. The city lay in ruins for 60 years, and the temple was never rebuilt. Even though they succeeded in killing Jesus, really they only succeeded in achieving God's plan, not their own, because God was directing their steps the whole time. So in conclusion, how small do our plans look compared to God's plans? It's almost cute the way that we think we can plan our lives out the way that we want them to be. And really this is a lesson of humility for us. We, we think we know what's best for us. We don't. We need to realize that and accept it and let go of the wheel and let God take control. That doesn't mean everyone go home and throw your budgets in the garbage and sell your house and quit your job. It means that if your plans aren't in line with God's plans, if you're not seeking his will for your life and prayerfully asking and listening for him to tell you his will for you, you need to do that. Because he knows what is best for us. Caiaphas thought he knew what was best for both himself and the Jewish people. But he was wrong. He made a plan that involved killing the instrument of God's plan. Thank goodness God's ways are higher than our ways and he always wins. Instead of just causing their plan to fail, he used their plan to fulfill his own. God took the greatest evil humanity ever committed, and through it, he worked the greatest good of all time. So don't get me wrong, his plan will prevail, whether you're on board or not. I would argue, though, that it's a little less painful if you aren't fighting him the whole way. And at some point, we do need to realize and accept that God's plans are so much bigger than ours. He knows what's best for us, and he sees the future, and he is directing our paths. So stop fighting him, let go of the wheel, and take joy in wherever he sends you. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. I thank you for the master plan that you've had since the beginning of time to redeem us to yourself. And I thank you that even though life can be confusing or bumpy sometimes, that you know what's best for us and wherever you send us and wherever you send me is where you want us. And ultimately it is for your glory and good and for our glory and good as well, because everything we do points back to you. Just ask that you be with us this week as we go out into our lives and just help us to be ever mindful and listening for your voice and your will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.